Hi, my name is Mike Dillard, and this is Self-Made Man, the podcast for men who want to leave their mark on the world and create a legacy of honor, integrity, and achievement in every aspect of their lives. I'm glad you're here, and once again, it is time to forge your destiny. So about 20 years ago, around the age of 18, I can remember walking through the aisles of my local bookstore and buying a copy of my very first personal development book. You know, I had no idea what I was looking for, but I knew that I needed to start thinking differently about my future. And so as I scoured the shelves, I grabbed one book uh, that caught my attention, and it was named The Aladdin Factor, and it was written by a guy named Jack Canfield. Well, that book set me down the path of personal growth and development that has shaped my life ever since. Since then, Jack has become one of the biggest personal brands in self-help. His Chicken Soup for the Soul book series has sold over 500 million copies around the world. And now that I had him on the phone for an hour, I wanted to ask him how he did it. When you look out at the world of personal development, there are thousands of speakers and authors who come and go. And yet only a handful have been able to make the kind of impact that Jack has. Tony Robbins, Brene Brown, John Maxwell, Wayne Dyer, Mark Victor Hansen, and Jim Rohn are really just some of the names that come to mind when you think of individuals who've made a global impact on the world for decades. Well, why is that? What have these individuals done in order to become the biggest names in their industry over the span of years and decades? And most importantly, how can you or I become the next Jack Canfield of our market, of our industry? Well, that's what we're going to find out here today, straight from the man himself. So please help me welcome Jack Canfield. Welcome back. And we have an incredibly, incredibly special guest with us here today, one of the uh, godfathers, if you will, at least in my mind, of the personal development industry, Mr. Jack Canfield. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. I'm unbelievably excited to finally have you on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So there's uh, a part of my life story that you played a very large role in uh, that you don't know. But back in high school, when I discovered personal development and, and started to, to dare to dream a little bit bigger for myself, I walked into a local bookstore. I think it was Bookstop back then. And I picked up my very first book on personal development, which was called The Aladdin Factor which you happen to be the author of. So uh, you absolutely changed my life. And I just wanted to acknowledge you for that and say thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mike. You're very welcome. Absolutely. So Jack, this is a really rare opportunity for myself, but also the individuals who are listening to this, because for the most part, we're all entrepreneurs. Many of us have businesses that are based on sharing our expertise in whatever specific field that we're, you know, where we happen to be an expert in. And yet very few people have been able to make such uh, a big of an impact on the world as you have during the course of your career. I can think of a handful, Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy, Brene Brown, you know, Jim Rohn and yourself, essentially. And my goal today was to glean some insights and wisdom from you on how individuals can take their business and the difference that they're making and, and expand that and scale that from thousands of people to ideally millions or tens of millions of people. And I don't exactly know where we should start on that path, but uh, I'll just hand the mic over to you and, and would love your wisdom. I think that the secret to my success, I actually wrote about it in a book called The Success Principles. And I was lying in bed one morning with my son, who was, I think, 12 at the time. And he said, Dad, how come you're so successful? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me think about the principles that I've lived my life by. And, um, you know, that's so I captured those in a book. We can talk about the core principles because I think they apply to your question. Number one, you have to take 100% responsibility for your life and your results. A lot of people tend to want to blame. They blame the economy. They blame the banks. They blame Wall Street. They blame their employees, you know, the regulations, you know, whatever it is. And so you really have to get out of blaming, get out of complaining, and get out of excuse making. And that's really one of the core issues. And I teach a, a, a formula called E plus R equals O, which says events plus response equal outcomes. So if you're an entrepreneur or anyone trying to create any result, the outcomes are what you're currently creating. What's your income? How how healthy are you? How satisfied are you in your relationships? You know, how many customers do you have? You know, whatever it might be, clicks on your internet site, et cetera. And so what people tend to do when they don't get the outcomes they want, 
they blame the event. They blame the outside world. And so what you have to do to be successful is continually change your responses to the way the world is. Two plus two is always going to equal four. And if you don't like four, you want five, which means increased income, increased revenues, increased customers, increased you know, people coming to your site, increased numbers of fans on Facebook, whatever it might be. What you're currently doing is only enough to get you what you're currently getting. So you've got to do something different. And the, the three areas of difference are your thoughts, the images you hold in your head, and your behaviors, which includes what you say and what you do. And I'll give you an example. During the first Gulf War that we had, uh, there, there was a, um, a client of mine who was an auto dealership. And they all the people stopped coming in to buy cars because everyone was watching CNN and Fox. It was the first televised war we really had in the Gulf in Iraq. And so what happened is that they said, we can't keep doing what we're doing, which is taking advertisements on radio and waiting for people to come in and doing test drives, not working. So they tried three different things, three different responses to the way the world was. And the one that worked was they started taking cars to where the people were. They quit waiting for people to come in and get a car or look at a car. They started taking their cars to where people who could afford them hung out. Country clubs, this was Lexuses, by the way. So it was country clubs, polo matches, the yacht basin at the Marina del Rey. This was in LA. And um, they would go in and they'd say, hi, what do you do? And the guy would say, I'm a bank president or I'm a lawyer. And they'd say, what do you do? Well, I'm a Lexus dealer. Have you ever driven a Lexus? No. I've got a fleet of five cars outside with, would you like to take one now? Well, why not? So they'd go out and get in the new LS430 and they'd drive around and they'd show them all the, the, the really bells and whistles with the, you know, the, the, the mirrors that turn down and see the curb, the quadraphonic Nakamichi sound system, the, uh, what they call the concierge service where you reach up and push a little button and a voice comes on and says, how can I help you? And you can ask it for directions to anywhere and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then people would come back and they'd get out of their car and get in their old car and their old car was no longer any good. You've all experienced that of having something where you went and like you saw your neighbor's kitchen remodeled or you drove in a new car and now you wanted that one. Well, they tripled their sales doing something in, a, in an economy when no one else was selling cars because they didn't sit around and complain and moan. They started experimenting with different things. So you want to live your life as a set of ongoing experiments. We all know about testing when we do mails. We test different headlines. We test different clothes. We test different price points. But we need to be doing that all day long. So that's the first thing is take 100% responsibility. The second thing is be really clear. What is your why? You know, Simon Sinek's book, Why, is really important. But what, what is your purpose? And if you can explain that purpose and talk to people in a way that they get excited about your purpose, then you're going to enroll people. They'll trust you. You know, people know that I'm not in this to make money. I'm in I'm into change, changing the world. You know, with Chicken Soup for the Soul, our book that now has sold, our series, which has now sold half a billion books. It's 500 million books around the world in 50 languages. We never were, went out to make money. We went out to make a difference. Now, obviously, I love money, and, I, and I'm, I, it's one of my goals. But the, the overriding purpose was to change the world one story at a time. And when people knew that, they trusted me. They trust me when I do workshops and I'm not there to abuse them, but I'm there to really empower them and I care about them. And so know what, what is your why story? An example was we had a person in a workshop I was running recently who was a professor of um, astronomy from Harvard. And uh, he was teaching uh, that uh, he, he was trying to enroll people and in, in, in giving more money for scholarships for young girls because girls were not getting the same support and education that guys were getting. And so he stood up and he told us all the statistics about girls and we, we almost all fell asleep. It was really boring. And then finally I said, why do you care? Why is this important to you? And then he went into this long, heartfelt story about his sister who was just as smart as him but couldn't get any scholarships. And we, we all had tears in our eyes. I would have pulled out my checkbook and written a check for $1,000 at that point because once I knew his why, his emotionally gripping reason for me to do something, to take action, I was inspired. So be really clear, what is your higher purpose? What is the purpose of your business? What's the vision you have? You know, our purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy. Our mission right now is to create one million trainers around the world that will be able to teach these principles. We now have about 2,000 people in 81 countries, including Nepal, where they were doing workshops right after the, the earthquake, going village to village, teaching people to be inspired, empowered, and motivated, and take action, organize, and so forth, rather than sit around and, and feel sorry for themselves. 
So what's your vision? And then what do you have as your goals? Like our goal this year is to have 5,000 new trainers. We just started this about a year and a half ago. And so you want to be very specific. You know, we, we did some research on entrepreneurs that were successful versus entrepreneurs that won when we wrote a book called The Power of, of Focus. The thing we found was three things that separated successful entrepreneurs from unsuccessful entrepreneurs, the three basic things, there are a lot of nuances on this, but one was they were very clear about their purpose, mission, vision, values, and goals and objectives. You could ask any one of them, you could ask their employees and they would tell you. I just worked with a pizza company who you could go in and the guy cleaning a table, you could say, what's the, what, what's the purpose of your job? He says, the purpose of my job is to clean these tables as fast as possible so we can get a higher turnover rate, so we increase the profits of this franchise store by 22% this year. You won't find that answer in most people. And so the reality is from the top to the bottom, people need to know very clearly, they have to have clarity of mission, values, uh, objectives, and goals, and purpose. The second thing we found is that they took 100% responsibility. They were not excuse makers. And the third thing we found was they were action-oriented. They were always willing to take action. They didn't sit around and talk about stuff. They had all these goals. They did a lot of planning, but they were action-oriented. And one of the key principles of success is to constantly be in action and then responding to feedback from your clients. One of the things that made success, uh, the um, chicken soup book so successful is that we were constantly soliciting feedback. For example, if we were doing a, a book, let's say chicken soup for the mother soul, we might get 400 submissions of stories from authors and past contributors. And then we had to winnow those down to about 150 of what we thought were the best stories. But then we would send those out to a panel of 40 people. They were a male, female, a conservative, liberal, apolitical, black, white, brown, yellow, urban, rural, suburban, old, young, middle-aged, whatever. So we had a cross-section of America, and we would say, grade every story on a scale of 1 to 10. Anything that's not a 10, tell us what it would take to make it a 10. We never published a story that got an average from 40 people of less than 9. And, you know, some stories would get 10 plus, so we'd give that a 10.5 on the scale. But we would have an Excel spreadsheet, 150 stories across the top, 40 people down the side. We'd put that into a Excel. We'd get the averages out. And that's what made the series so successful. And many stories that I wrote, my co-author, Mark Victor Hansen, wrote, never made it in the books. My ego would have liked it, but the fact was we needed feedback so that our audiences would like it. And so a lot of people don't ask for feedback. And the reason they're afraid of asking for feedback is fear of what they're going to hear. They might not like it. I don't want to hear it. You know, my wife might be upset with me. My employees don't think I'm a great boss. And so you don't want to hear it. I mean, I think our current president's a good example of not particularly being very open to feedback. And I think that's ultimately going to cost him in, in big ways. We're seeing some of that blowback right now. But you have to be willing to listen to your constituents, to your employees, your vendors, your family, your clients, your customers, and so forth. And so I teach the best question you can ever ask anybody in terms of business is, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate our service, this product, me as a boss, our store, our location, our sale, you know, whatever it might be. And the same with your family, me as a dad, me as a spouse, me as a teacher, me as a student. And so Anyway, I'm going to stop and make sure you're still there because I'm, I'm being yeah, no, no, hey, I'm, I'm all ears. This has been okay, this good. has been great. Absolutely, you know, uh, along these lines, you know, one of the the questions that I'm dying to ask you is sure above and beyond the the success principles. Let's say that I've been working with you for years. I've really you know gotten those down in a pretty good way. And if I were to hire you or bring you on as a business partner or a business coach. Mm -hmm. And I said, Jack, I want to become the next Jack Canfield of my world, of my industry. What do I need to sure. do from a business model perspective to do that? Because so very few people have. Well, I, let's do general first, and we can relate it specifically to speaking, coaching, cool. you know, writers if you want. But yeah. generally, I would have to ask you, the first question is, well, what does that mean to you to be the next Jack Canfield? Give me a measurable goal. Are you talking about having... 15, you know, 60 best-selling books on the New York Times list? Are you talking about having a $10 million year income with a $3 million net revenue? Are you talking about being able to speak in, you know, 50 countries like I've done? Are you talking about having your own TV show? You've already got a, you know, internet podcast going. In other words, I would ask you very specifically, what does that mean? Because the biggest problem I see when people set goals is that they're vague. I want to have a best-selling book. What does that mean? One day, 
on the New York Times list? Does it mean selling 150,000 books? Does it mean um, just being on an Amazon bestseller list in one category, which is not that hard these days? You can legitimately call yourself a best-selling author, but I don't take that really too seriously with some people because it can be manipulated fairly quickly. But if that's what you want, then there's a strategy to do that. So the first thing would be to be very clear, how do you measure where it is you want to be so that we know when you got there? Once we've determined that, then we can begin to look at how do we map out a plan to get there? So for me, I could give you very specifically what I've done, which I will do in a minute. But in, in other industries, I would ask you to look at who's been successful at the level you want to be successful. Because you can do two things. You can reach out to them. And usually they've either got a podcast, they have seminars, they have books or franchise manuals they've written, et cetera. And so we can, you know, Tony Robbins has a great quote I love. He says, success leaves clues. And so there are clues out there. You can ask people to have a meal with you and, and, and just hit them up for lots of advice. You can ask someone to mentor you. I remember being down in um, Texas and I was getting makeup put on for a morning TV show. I was promoting my book, The Success Principles. And the woman putting on my makeup, I said to her, as I always do, everybody, so what's your major breakthrough goal in life? What do you really want to accomplish? What's your big dream? And she said, I would love to own my own salon. And I said, that's fabulous. What are you doing to make that happen? And she said, nothing. And I said, that's a terrible strategy. That won't get you there. And she said, well, I don't know what to do. And I said, here's a radical idea. Go find someone who owns a salon. There's tons of them in all the malls around. I think we were in Dallas or Houston. And I said, Ask to speak to the owner. See if you could take her to lunch or breakfast or dinner or buy her a drink after work, whatever it is, and ask her, how did you create your salon? How did you come to be an owner of a salon? And there's a pathway. There's something she did or he did. And so she went, she was, wow, that's a great idea. So my friend Keith Ferrazzi wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. And what he meant by that is every time you're having lunch, breakfast, why not have a meal with somebody who's already done what you want to do? the top salesperson in your company, the person who's already written a best-selling book. For me and Mark, when we did Chicken Soup for the Soul, we were really passionate about this process. I mean, it, it was a, this project took on a almost a divine obsession, and I, I don't quite know why other than perhaps it was part of my divine mission on earth, if you will. But we just really took it seriously. And we, what, before the book came out, right, you know, maybe a month before it was going to be printed and put in the bookstores, Mark and I called up about six people who were best-selling authors, John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. We called up Ken Blanchard, who wrote The One Minute Manager. We called up uh, a guy who'd written a TM book, which was about transcendental meditation that had been a bestseller. Anyway, I could list all the authors, not important, but every one of them we asked, what would you do if you were us so we can make sure this book becomes a bestseller? Every single person spent 20, 30 minutes on the phone with us and gave us incredible ideas. There was one guy um, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, who his book had been on the bestseller list for 12 years, New York Times bestsellers, 12 years, never off for a week. And he said, Jack and Mark, I want you to do at least one radio show every day for the next five years. And he said, the first year you want to do three a day. And the best ones are one hour long where you really can go deep, like we're doing on this podcast, so people really know what you're thinking. And you can do drive time shows, which are anywhere from three to five minutes because they're reaching so many people as they're driving to work or driving home from work. So we did that, and it took us 14 months before we hit a bestseller list. But once we hit the bestseller list, we stayed on the New York Times list with that first book for three years. And by the end of three years, we had seven books simultaneously on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was that constant day in, day out slog. And I think one of the, the key principles for us was we developed something we write about in the book called uh, the rule of five. If you could do five things every single day that would take you toward your goal, what would it be? And they could be five similar things. Like if your goal was to lose weight, it could be, you know, cut out carbs, don't eat sugar, drink 12 glasses of water, do deep breathing exercises, do, you know, an hour of aerobics, whatever. However, for most things in business, it's constantly trying new things, trying on new things. And so Mark and I, you know, for our rule of five, we would call five churches every day and ask if we can come in and do the uh, guest uh, sermon on a Sunday or maybe their Tuesday night, you know, uh, classes. We would ask if we could sell books in their bookstore at the back of the church after we did our talk. We would 
call five newspapers and ask if they would interview us. We would send out five free books to reviewers. We would uh, call five uh, PXs on military bases and ask if they were carrying our book. We called every bookstore in California one at a time over a period of months and said, are you carrying our book? If not, can we send you a copy? Will you look at it? We'd call them back. Did you get it? Did you like it? Would you carry it? Yes. So that level of just outreach was critical. We started calling multi-level marketing companies because we thought the book would be inspirational. And we said, would you like to buy, you know, 500 copies for your downline? You know, the first two days I did that, I got hung up on. I got told we don't do that. And then the third day, I think it was, whatever it was, the, the head of Discovery Toys said, oh, I'm really interested. Send me a copy. I did. She bought 500 books and hired me to be the keynote speaker for her next conference. And little by little, we got we we penetrated Amway and Isogenics and you know uh, Nuskin and Nerium and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that you have to be willing to do is daily, 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 trying new things and being consistent. You know whether it's five things, ten things, making twenty sales calls, whatever it might be, and be a record keeper. I have a chapter in the book called Scorekeeping for Success. You know I I keep score of everything, my weight how many minutes I exercise, how many hours of sleep I got, because these are goals I have, how many hours I spend with my wife a week, how many times I call my son and my grandson. So whatever your goals are, if you're not keeping track of the actions that produce those results, then you can you tend to be taken off course by those things that are comfortable, not stretching you, what we call shiny objects, you know, uh, things that look good, but now you're committed to 16 projects instead of three or four. One of the things I do in my seminars, I'll hold up a piece of paper between two hands, just an eight and a half by 11 normal sheet of, uh, you know, paper you put in the Xerox machine. And then I have a person put their hand, their palm with their finger spread wide on it and push on that paper. And as hard as they push, it doesn't break. Then I have them put one finger and stick it in the middle of the piece of paper and push on it. And immediately it splits the paper in half because we now have more pounds per square inch focused on that one part of the paper. And it's a metaphor for when you focus on those key things that are um, supporting your results and you stay true to that over time, you get what uh, the, you know some people have written a book called the compound effect, which is if I do a little bit more every day, the things that get me where I want to go, eventually I've done a whole lot more. For example, if I do 10 more push-ups every day than my competitor does, at the end of the year, I've done 3,560 more push-ups. That has an impact. If I make two more sales calls than everyone else in my company makes over the course of a year, let's say I work 220 days a year if I take weekends off, that's 440 more sales calls. And if my average is one out of every 20 calls, people buy something, I've sold 50 more people than everyone else in my office. So little things like that, I think are really critical. This, this, this work ethic, if you will, I think someone said once, uh, the only place in the world where success comes before work is in the dictionary. And I truly believe that I have a quote on my computer. I'm not sitting in front of that computer right now. This may not be exactly word for word, but it's uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, uh, many people think that my success was earned by sudden flight. But while they were sleeping, I was working upward in the night. And so, you know, in the beginning, you put in a lot of long hours. Um, it's kind of like the metaphor of a plane taking off on a runway. We've all been on that plane, and it just goes down the runway gathering speed. We think, is it ever going to take off in the air? And eventually it lifts. It takes a lot of energy to get up to 35,000 feet. But once you're up there, all of a sudden, you're, you're kind of coasting. You know, the, the, the plane's using less fuel. It's not as effortful. But to get into that place where you can coast, where you can be, you know, uh, you know, having passive income, if you will, from all the systems you've put in place and the people you've empowered, then you're going to get to where you want to go uh, much easier at that point. You know, success becomes m much more effortless. It's that hockey stick curve of effort. And I think for every enterprise I've ever gotten into, we've worked our butts off. For example, a couple of years ago, we developed our Train the Trainer online program. And we did three weeks of live training. We recorded it all. It was 120 hours of training. We had to edit it down to about 40 hours of video and not lose the essence of actually being able to train people to do live transformational trainings over the internet, whether you were living in Dubai or Tehran and Iran or living in Los Angeles, you'd be able to access this. And we spent almost a half a year editing 
and then going into the studio and putting in, you know, interstitial material that needed to be there and then, you know, sweetening it, adding music, adding graphics. And it was a lot of work, invested $300,000 in developing that product. But in the first year and a half, we were able to sell 1,500 units of that program and, you know, make over a million and a half dollars. Again, it wasn't the money we were after, but we wanted to make a difference. But with a $300,000 investment and a year's worth of work, we now have a product that can change people's lives all over the world. And so now we're getting international acclaim. I've been invited because of that program this year just to speak in Finland, Estonia, Poland, South Africa, Dubai, Iran, Japan, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, the Asia, five, five countries in Asia on a single tour. So all of that hard work paid off. And you have to be willing to know that you don't get instant results all the time with the internet. Now we can get a lot faster results. Uh, we see that all the time and that's a wonderful thing, but you have to really create good products and make sure they, you know, when people ask me, how do I become a best-selling author? I have 22 points I teach them, but the first one is write a really good book. Word of mouth is what gets you there and good advertising, but good advertising in a bad book, people find out and then it doesn't go anywhere. Anyway, yeah, I've been going on and on again. I'll stop and give you a chance to jump in. No, this is great. And, and you actually bring up a, a question that I was going to ask you, which is how do you view taking the time to go out and speak at events around the world today when you know you could essentially pay to, to put your message in front of tens of thousands of people a day online? Do you still think that speaking at events is a critical activity? that individuals need to pursue or not so much these days? I think the real question is, that do they want to pursue it? Not do you need to pursue it? I think today we have a lot of people that have proven you can make a very good living and impact a lot of people simply being online with really good marketing and really good affiliate partners and all of that. I think that for me, I love live trainings. I there, There's something about, you talk to actors who make movies, you talk to actors, those same actors, you'll see like Ryan Gosling right now who did La La Lamb, won a lot of awards, uh, is, is doing a play on Broadway. Why? Because it's more dynamic, it's more fun, it's more challenging, it's more rewarding to have that live audience in front of you in that moment. So will he ever stop doing movies? No. But for me, I, I couldn't spend the whole year doing that. I wouldn't reach enough people and my wife would divorce me and lots of other things. But the reality is I feed on live trainings. And the other thing is in live trainings, I can test things and see how they work with real people. And if they work, then those concepts, those processes, those metaphors, whatever, those stories I tell, that is then what I take and put into a book, put into a product, put it into an online course. So for me, I, first of all, I love to travel. I love seeing new countries. I love the people. And normally at this stage in my life, when I travel and I speak it's to audiences anywhere from 600 to, I'm speaking to a group in Italy in October of 12,000 multi-level marketers for some company over there. So first of all, that's exciting to speak to 12,000 people. There's an energetic that's fun to, to play with. But also, it gives leads to us to give people the ongoing support products and, and services we have that I might not in that might never find out about me on the internet. So I'm, someone else is putting me on their stage with all the people they've gathered together, and that makes it easier just to show up and get twelve thousand people to build a mailing list of twelve thousand on the internet. It takes weeks and months when you're first starting out. I mean, we now have a million three hundred thousand. Facebook fans, but that took years to develop. I'm working with other people who've been doing this for two, three years. So my students, there might be up to like 50,000 names. And so I think for me, the, the the reach of the internet is phenomenal. But for me, it's I love to do some live work. I, I was offered a TV show on Fox once, like a like a Ellen DeGeneres type show. And I decided not to do it because it was going to nail me down to one way of playing. I would have to be there five days a week, every week for, you know, most of the year. And I like the variety of being able to travel, do speeches, do seminars, go to conferences, see new countries and so forth and so on. So for me, it's a, it's a mix. From a, a business model perspective, what do you feel has been the most important component of your, of your business? Uh, and we could say from a revenue standpoint or a legacy standpoint, uh, reach, but you know you've got the book side, you've got the product side, and you've got the the speaking side. Is there any mm -hmm. one of those that stands out as like this is really what helped set the create the foundation of uh, of my brand essentially in my business? 
Yeah, I, I would say it was, it was a rhythmic uh, kind of undulation, you know, a curve that goes up and down. I'd say it started with speaking um, because that's how I learned to do what I did. And I learned what worked and what didn't work. And then writing my first book, which was 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in a Classroom, I could only write that because I'd been a teacher and I'd trained teachers and I'd gathered techniques and tested them with them and so forth. That book, when it came out, sold 400,000 copies, which in the world of education is unheard of. I had a really good mail order guy at, at Prentice Hall, who was my publisher. Without him, I don't know who would have done that, but he te he tested everything. He would mail to all the fifth grade teachers in Delaware, and if that worked, he'd mail to all the fifth grade teachers in Pennsylvania. If that worked, he'd mail to all the fifth grade teachers across the world. And then he'd test fourth grade teachers or English teachers. So uh, way before the internet, he was an amazing uh, you know marketer. With the internet today, we probably would have sold four million books. But anyway, so first speaking, then the book, then the book led to more speaking keynotes at major national and, 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 and conferences. I would say the books ultimately reached more people uh, back then because, you know, that's what there was. With the Internet today, I mean, I've been on webinars where we've had half a million people. Uh, the technology now is insane what you can do. I and mean, you can actually, you know, with, with much of the technology, you can have 10,000 people and actually have them interact with each other using uh, different platforms that break people into pairs and small groups and you can listen in like you're walking around the room. So I think the internet today, I would say our online courses, if I look back over any one thing, the online courses would probably be the most lucrative, millions and millions of dollars. Chicken Soup for the Soul books probably made 30 to $50 million over the course of those years that I was doing that. We sold the company a few years ago. but Books are hard to make a fortune on because there's so many of them. And everyone who's got a word processor, now a computer, uh, can write a book. And every psychologist, when they don't have a patient, is writing a book. And everybody is, you know, recording now and then transcribing and they've got a book. So it's very, very competitive. I think books are more for credibility today. Books, there are books that do make a difference. Even if your book is something that a lot, a lot of people have said, I think it's valuable for credibility to have a book. People respect you more. But I wouldn't expect to make a fortune off the book. I'd as one of my friends says, you don't make a lot of money off a book. You make a lot of money explaining your book, meaning speaking about it, running seminars, doing coaching programs. We actually have a handout I give in some of my workshops, 52 ways to exploit a, um, a intellectual property. You can have coaching programs, uh, newsletters that people pay for, you know, speaking about it, having podcasts about it, having membership sites about it, you know, on and on you can go. And so today with the technology, I would say the greatest leverage is the online world, um, but occasionally a breakthrough book will happen that that that, that brands you in a way like Tony Robbins' Money Book uh, took him to a whole new level in in the world of finance, gave him more respectability among conservative business people. So it it just really depends on what your purpose is. I always tell people if you're writing a book, what's the purpose? Is it to make a difference? Is it to be able to sell it in the back of the room for additional income? Is it to be able to have a credibility, like a business card that other people pay for? For example, you mentioned the Aladdin factor. I got a call once from a guy who said, I, I own a company. I went into the bookstore. I was looking to hire a speaker for our annual sales conference. Uh, I was walking down the aisle. I saw this book, The Aladdin Factor. I was wondering what that was. I pulled it out. I looked at it. I liked it. I bought it. I read it. I said, I want that guy to speak to my people. So that's a book that he paid for that was like me giving him a brochure, but he paid for it. And it led to a $25,000 speaking engagement for me. So one of the things I believe in and teach is you want to have a multi-tiered, it's kind of like having an arsenal or like you know, you're up on the mountain, you've got howitzers, you've got cannons, you've got machine guns, you've got rifles and pistols and rockets and grenades. And every one of those has a different function, but all together they add up to having an army. And so in a sense, you want to be an information utility or whatever your business is. You're, you want many, many ways to reach many, many people. You know, some people don't open their emails. Some people will, you know, like Dan uh, Kennedy teaches, send texts and send faxes because everyone has to take the fax out of their fax machine. So we still do that. So basically... Each of those is a different part of the arsenal that says we're going to reach X number of people with X number of messages in X number of days to produce X number of results. Moving on from from the business side and the sales side, and, and that's really insightful uh, feedback, by the way. I'm sitting here lost in my my train of thoughts, thinking about you know how I could apply this to to my business and 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 what the next step is. But 
you know, let's say that someone's business is currently netting a million dollars. I have found personally in my career and and looking at other entrepreneurs that making money is one thing. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of help and assistance when it comes to sales and revenue uh, out there in the the online entrepreneur space. Mm -hmm. But keeping that money and growing that money is a very different skill set and requires a very different discipline. What are some of the biggest lessons learned during your career when it comes to handling the money that your business has made over the years? Well, I'm I'm a very conservative when it comes to money, and, and meaning that I am not a, a what's the word I want um, a conspicuous consumer, as it were. In other words, I could afford a Rolls Royce, but I don't drive one. I drive a Lexus. I think it's a great car. Um, if you want to have a you know a, a, the newest BMW Roadster, go for it. But for me, money is a resource that I can use for. It's it's a resource that I want to have a lot of when I need it. And so we uh, are very conservative in terms of our staff, in terms of, you know, travel and expenditures. We have all the equipment we need. We don't scrimp on that. But, you know, I want people to realize that that, that it's, a, it's a valuable commodity. We don't want to waste it. And I think one has to study money management. You know, I mean – Personally, I I tithe. I also personally put take ten to twenty percent of my income and invest that. So you know I've got you know tens of millions of dollars invested that produce over a half a million dollars of income for me a year. I mean I could retire and live off a half a million a year, some of it tax free because the way it's invested. Not that I want to. I love working, but I think that. You know, one of my favorite stories is a guy named John D. Martini. I don't know if you're familiar with John, but John was a chiropractor down in Texas and he studied. He's one of the geniuses I've. He reads every book written by every Nobel Prize winner every year in physics, chemistry, biology, philosophy, you know, literature, whatever it is. And he's just extremely bright. And he told his staff once that he had read about. This guy who um, John uh, Templeton, I think is his name, and the, one of the richest guys that ever lived, and he said, "I want to do what he does. He takes fifty cents of every dollar and he invests it." And so he said to his staff, "I want to invest this much money every month, and you need to figure out how to help me make this much money." He was a speaker and a chiropractor and a trainer, and he said to his staff, "If we don't make this much money, you don't get paid." So this is the way this works. Your employment contract depends on this company making this much money every month. Anything more than that will profit share you and me. But if we don't make that, then I get paid first, which was a radical idea. But the point was he was coming very clearly into this place of you've got to invest money. You can invest it in your business. You can invest it in real estate. You can invest it in stocks and bonds and gold and whatever. But, you know, The Richest Man of Babylon, a wonderful classic book. I read that in my youth. There's a the richest, I think it was The Rich Barber. Uh, it was a Canadian book that someone wrote. But it's all about taking 10% minimum of your income and putting it into investments that make more money. And so we have some of our corporate money invested uh, as well. So it's making money for the company, and it's always there if we need it. Do you mind so I if, if I, I do you mind if I unpack that a, a little bit because sure. you're the first person Please. who's ever who's ever said that before? You know, uh-huh. obviously, if you're going to be investing corporate money, that has to be in and ideally something super super conservative and safe. Would you mind uh, or be able to share some of the details about what you guys do with that? Well, it first goes in a money market fund, which doesn't make any much money at all. But then we have a, I have a guy when when I sold Chicken Super to Soul, we sold the company for sixty three million dollars. And Mark got half of that. I got half of that. Then I bonus some of our staff and a couple million bucks. We bonused out all the people that had played. Anyway, it ended up after taxes having about $20 million to play with. Then did I hired a money manager um, who manages wealthy people's money. So I don't, I don't sit there and think about every single thing we invest in. However, uh, some of the things we've invested in, because I meet with him regularly, we go over it, but I mostly trust what he does because he thinks about it all day long with three staff. That's all they do. But we've invested in some things like um, their funds that are available to people that are plaintiffs in cases and where they have won the case, but there's no money that's been given. This money goes into a fund. They can take money from that fund and they pay us an interest because they're getting it earlier. So we've invested in things like that. We've invested in property uh, in Brazil, property development in Brazil. Um, that's been very, very successful. We invested 
at one point a number of years ago in some oil things that were solid, the oil futures. I don't do that anymore. I think it's too volatile. But we look for things, and, and primarily what we're invested in now is private equity, where we're loaning money at a higher interest rate than the banks because people can't get bank loans. And they're always secured with property or something like that. So money that's making money that way, uh, private equity is probably the largest um, income producing uh, area we've found to, to generate, you know, 9, 10, 12, 15% income. Yeah, uh, uh, that absolutely makes sense. Do you ever take equity in, in other companies or startups to take a role as an advisor? Yeah, that's something that, that I have had an opportunity to do a few times. But uh, I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. And uh, I know Tony Robbins does that quite often. Is that something you do as well? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't. Tony does it with like major consulting or he'll go in and really do, you know, in-depth training and consulting and be available by phone all the time. I prefer to get paid now and be done with it for that. However, I am on the advisory boards of three startups where I have stock. I actually had stock just for being an advisor. But then at, when I saw the companies were doing really well, I actually bought some other stock as well. One's a company called MeWe, which is an alternative to Facebook that's absolutely 100% private. And uh, there's no, um, you know, they're not trying to sell you stuff. Uh, it's safe for your kids. And more and more as privacy issues are becoming more and more obvious that we don't have privacy we're seeing that company's growth is 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 extremely huge so i'm i've a fairly good position in that and a good large percentage of that was just to be on the advisory board so i do do that but it's just basically being an advisor for you know random phone calls very good very good and one of the last uh questions that i have for you here is what if any have there been uh from a landmine standpoint during your career you know some maybe you ran into a bad guy who defrauded you or, you know, did harm to your company, but what have been like the really big mistakes that you could share with others that, you know, they could possibly sure. prevent? Well, I'd say in the very, very beginning, I hired a woman as an assistant. I gave her check writing privileges and <laughs> one day she wrote a check to herself for $10,000 and disappeared. Uh, we never did find her, including the police. Um, so uh, today all checks are, you know, double or triple signed, depending on the amount of check that goes out. I've got a really good account in my trust and I've got a, a president that runs my company that I trust. I'm a chairman of the board. But anything huge I signed as well. So that was one thing I learned. Um, you know, you got to watch the, the dollars, uh, who's in charge of them, who can write them. I would say my divorce was another major thing that 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 threw me for a loop. At that time, I was probably worth about oh, I'm going to say thirteen million dollars. In today's they, money, that's significant. <laughs> yeah, 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 that was about twenty years ago. And um, the, what happened was my ex-wife got the same lawyers that uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were fighting it out with and forensic accounts that basically valued my company as the worth the exact same amount of assets I had. So that my wife got all my assets and I got to keep my job. And as a quirky California laws that allowed that to happen. So I would literally start it over 20 years ago. I mean, I was wearing shirts three days in a row, so I wouldn't have to send them to the dry cleaners. You know, it was, it was a tough time. And you, and you, so you're around what, 50, 52 then? Yeah, I'm 72 now, so I was mm -hmm. 52. Then, exactly. Wow, that's that's a hell of a time to have to start over. <laughs> it is, you know, and, and, and fortunately, I, and I would say this is a secret of success too, as some Tony Robbins also teaches, you have to have a lot of physical energy to be successful. And that means exercise, that means eating healthily, that means meditation, that means stress reduction, massages, forgiving people so you're not carrying a lot, a lot of resentment. It means processing your wounds from childhood. You know, at 52, I had a lot of energy. Most people would, even today at 72, most people say I look like I'm 60. So the reality is I only get by on about seven hours of sleep, six and a half a lot. Maybe on a weekend I'll sleep eight. I meditate every day. I eat healthy. I take supplements. I exercise. So that I, when that happened to me, first of all, I knew I had the ability to do it again because I'd done it once. And secondly, I had the energy to do it. You know, I wasn't like, oh, God. And I think that that's important that you keep your energy up. It's a, you know, it's a, we're a mind and a body and a emotions and a spirit. And you got to keep all of those in high gear. 
Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I uh, I went through my first <laughs> divorce two or three years ago and, and had to start over as well. Did not heed the, the words of wisdom from my friends and colleagues about prenups and, and things like that. And um, 18 months later, you know, there you go. <laughs> so well, I can appreciate It's really that. true. And I, th- I think the other thing that, that people don't heed when it comes to friends is the friends say, get a good lawyer. And quite often, we don't want to be mean to the person that we love and lived with for two, five, 10, 20 years, whatever it was. You know, I got a nice lawyer and my my wife got the total, you know, kind of uh, tack dog in town. And I d- made some really stupid moves. I gave her a house to live in uh, from the money we had and uh, assumed that would be taken out of the divorce settlement as a, an asset. And the, and the court said, no, you gave it as a gift. Well, because I didn't have a good lawyer and wasn't paying attention, I lost, you know, about $2 million that I wouldn't have needed to lose at that point in time. So don't be afraid when it comes to issues with partners, have good buy-sell agreements, have good exit plans, uh, exit strategies, put everything in writing. One of my teachers once said, verbal contracts aren't worth the paper they're not written on. (laughs) It's a very good little metaphor to say, if you don't have it in writing, People can claim that you said or didn't say something. And you know, so as much as I love all my staff, we have very clear written contracts with my business partners, with uh, with everybody. And that was a hard-learned lesson. We want to look like we're the nice guy, but you can get wounded pretty bad if you're not careful. I appreciate you you being transparent about that and, and honest. And it's nice to see that you know, individuals as successful as yourself you know, can go through the same challenges and make the same mistakes that uh, that the rest of us do. So. I appreciate that very much. What do you have going on these days? What are you working on business-wise that you're excited about? What can people go get involved with or, or where can they see you speak? But what's going on? Sure. I'm, I would say the first thing I just offer all the people listening to this, a, we have a, a free 10-day transformation. It's an online thing. You, you sign up, just go to jackcanfield.com. Then you, you'll see that it, it'll come up as an offer. And what happens is every day you'll get a, uh, a three-minute video and it's me talking about one of the success principles, 10 different success principles in a specific order because we say success is the result of doing the right things in the right way in the right time in the right order. And so a lot of it's like a combination lock. If you're missing one of the numbers or you have the numbers out of order, it doesn't work. And so you want to make sure that you have these 10 principles, they're really like a system. And so that's available free. It gives you a little homework assignment every day to do during the day to act, actualize that principle. So that's just a way to get started and get familiar with the work. I really encourage people to get a copy of my book. It's called The Success Principles, Amazon.com, BordensNoble.com, my, also my website, JackCampfield.com. And then we have uh, online trainings, both something called the Your Extraordinary Life Program, and it's a uh, online course. It's uh, 12 weeks, and it really takes one goal and gets you to completion on a breakthrough goal. We call a breakthrough goal is something that will quantum leap you in your career or your business. So it's like a 60-yard pass play in football instead of just grinding out four more yards. We also have our online train-the-trainer program. And while you may not want to become a trainer, although I advise all bosses, all people that are in MLMs, all managers, all teachers, uh, you really want to learn how to experientially ingrain these principles into your staff, into your followers, into your employees, et cetera. So we have that program. It's just called uh, Train the Trainer. You can see it on our website. And the greatest thing about that, not only do you learn how to be a trainer and train these principles in the people that you work with, but also you're going through the course yourself. It's the most in-depth course. It's 40 hours of, of uh, training online, uh, accessible 24-7 for the rest of your life. Once you pay for it, you have access forever. So if you were going to do something, you can go back and watch me teach that technique or do that little lecturette or whatever. So you can you know, bone up on it. It's got all the scripts or PowerPoint and keynote slides in the program you can download. It's really a no-brainer. But what the feedback we get, Mike, is that people go through it. They go, wow, this is amazing. I've learned now 100% responsibility in a way because we spend two hours on it in a training. We spent like five minutes on it here. And so it's really transformational. So you can check that out as well. And we have other programs. We do a breakthrough to success training twice a year. And our, our flagship course is a retreat. It's an executive retreat for four and a half days. We do it in Florence, Italy, and we do it in my hometown of Santa Barbara twice a year. You can find out about that. So the, the real invitation, go to the website, 
Jack Canfield, that's C-A-N-F-I-E-L-D.com, jackcanfield.com. And it's all there, including the free 10-day transformation. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. Well, Jack, it was uh, it was an absolute pr- pleasure to get to speak with you in person after all of these years and, and the fact that you got me started down this path, gosh, 20, 25 years ago now. So unbelievably grateful for the time today and, and for the message and the wisdom that you've shared with our audience. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us as well. And uh, we'll see you next week on Self-Made Man. Take care. Thank you.